Friends, shall we bow our hands with prayer and commit this time to the Lord? Dear Lord, even as we address this particular uh, matter, we pray for your spirit to guide us and help us, Lord, to discern the truth and also to uh, encourage the building up of the church, Lord, that we might be uh, a church of order and a church of peace, Lord. In the words of my mouth and meditations of all our hearts, O oh Lord, be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning, we had our sister, Annette Aruraja. Uh, I'll, I'll give you her background later on uh, when we do the announcement. So, uh, Sister Annette uh, came and preached on a topic, and it was really relating to um, King uh, Josiah, who became uh, a king at the age of eight. Uh, and it was talking about the fragile inheritance that we had. She could only speak for the first two services because she had to fly off for a meeting. And so, you're stuck with me for the 5 p.m., and uh, in this point, uh, I had to wrestle and struggle with what particular text to look at. And I suppose it would be a good time to deal with this particular one. It's about spiritual gifts, uh, women, and orderly worship. I often get asked this question, uh, Pastor, what do you think about the spiritual gifts? Should our church be speaking in tongues? Uh, what do you think about prophecy or word of God and the various other giftings? And so this is a relevant text that in a way uh, adds to that input. It's not a complete one, uh, but we're looking at this from uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 14, uh, where it talks about how do we use the gifts. And you have to recall, uh, 14 follows on from chapter 11, 12, and 13, where it talks about the various gifts. But in chapter 13, uh, at the start of it, Paul says, you know, I will show you uh, a better way. Uh, a, a more excellent way is the term that he uses. And, and one of the things that he says is, uh, if you have all these tongues and you have all these gifts, but you do not have love, then I am an empty gong. And so uh, the exercise of these giftings without the, the aspect of love uh, that salts it is one of the key things that he's talking about. But in there, he's also, in a way, addressing some of the questions about uh, the use of these gifts in service and he now uh, shifts his thought towards the orderliness in a worship service. And in these things, he's talking about how the potential use or the exaggeration of the use of these giftings may cause disorder in the church. And then he makes a side comment, or rather the text seems to say certain things about, uh, about the priority of gifts. Uh, is uh, speaking in tongues more important than uh, prophecy? And I may need to explain a little bit about what prophecy uh, means. Uh, and, and then at the same time, there's a bit of an aside there to uh, women. And so it's quite uh, funny that Vanessa came up just now. Pastor, are you sure you want me to read this? <laughs> because uh, I, I, am, I, am I not saying this? And I'm being told in the text itself that women shouldn't, we should just keep quiet. Uh, so this is obviously a very... Uh, sensitive text that many people have said, yeah, you Christians are all sexist, uh, misogynist, uh, and you obviously have no place for women, you disrespect women, and Paul is the number one culprit in that sense. So how do we make sense of this text, and how, we, how do we look at these things? So even as we prayed for the Spirit's illumination, 
uh, pray for me too, uh, so that you know I, I get some shielding from this. Just remember, this is Paul saying this. I'm just saying it out from what he said. So what do we understand about spiritual gifts? Um, in the first instance, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. I want to emphasize that first verse reading in itself. Follow the way of love because he just finished one whole chapter in verse 13. He says, uh, you need to follow the way of love, but also eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, the charismata of the uh, Spirit, especially prophecy. And for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. And indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. In fact, Paul goes on further to say even the person who is uttering these tongues uh, won't even understand it himself, may not even understand it himself unless he has the ability to interpret tongues. So what he's saying is, is in a mystery and the Greek word that's being used there is glossolalia. And this word glossolalia is uh, in a way the use of a tongue in, in a way that is not decipherable, not understood. It's not an English or any particular language per se. There are other instances where we talk about speaking in other tongues where glossolalia has also been interpreted where you speak in a tongue that is not your mother tongue which you do not know but someone else listening to you understands it. So in a way, it is a mysterious gift at that time that people can understand. The other mysteries, but Paul here is also saying when you speak in a tongue, he's not speaking to people. So if I start saying something to you in tongues, uh, it, the direction is wrong. <laughs> it's meant to be upwards to God. But the one who prophesies is speaking to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. So personally, for, uh, for the person who speaks in tongues, it's for his own personal edification and it's between him and God. But when it comes to prophecy, it is for him and the people around him who are hearing and uh, the church, the building up of the church, strengthening, encouraging, and comforting uh, the church is what he's primarily doing. It continues uh, in saying, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. So it's personal. So tongues are for personal edification, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. And so the distinctive between the two is that the tongues is not easily understood unless you have the gift of interpreting tongues. Prophecy, on the other hand, is understood. It is given in the plain uh, language of the people. And uh, here's where I need to explain what prophesying is. Now, prophesying isn't a situation where you see in movies where the person glosses his eyes over and you just see the whites of their eyes and they say, uh, one week from now, you're going to meet with an accident. Uh, no, that's not prophesying. That's effectively uh, fortune-telling or, or uh, what do you call it, being a seer. Right? Prophesying has two functions. It is what we call a forth-telling. Yeah, and a large part of what the prophecies, uh, the prophets did in the Old Testament as well as, uh, as in the New Testament was to forth-tell. What does it mean to forth-tell? To foretell is to speak with the authority of what God has placed in you. And so in the Old Testament, a prophecy would begin with this, thus says the Lord. And the, the word of the Lord declares. 
and it will come to pass. And, and, and the mark of a good prophet is the fact that when he says it, thus says the Lord, thus said the, says the Lord, it happens. Okay. So in a way, a prophet in the Old Testament is pretty much like a prophet now. You don't know whether they're truly a prophet of God until what they say comes to happen. But what they say coming to happen is something which is related to the smaller portion of what prophecies are like, which is the foretelling bit, the future bit. So when Isaiah say, uh, uh, says a virgin shall conceive or a young maiden shall conceive, he is foretelling. It hasn't happened yet. It's about to happen. But when it's about to happen, we don't know. All he says is a virgin shall conceive. Now, some people argue when Isaiah says that, he's giving a timeline that in the time that it takes for a woman to give birth, which means in nine months' time, this thing will happen. But we... Uh, retrospectively look at that and say when Christ is born of Mary, Virgin Mary, that's also a foretelling for future telling of what uh, God is going to do. So what I want to get summarily out of this is that uh, a prophet foretells, in other words, declares that God's will is such and such. And therefore, in a church, when a person declares the word of God, he is foretelling. He's saying, this is what God says. So a preacher, a person who reads the scriptures, is performing pretty much a prophetic role in saying, God has said this of the past and the present and of the future. When I read something in Revelations and in scripture, he's foretelling what God is about to do or has done. The harder bit is when someone says there is foretelling. Now, there is a difference between prophecy in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because what happens in the Old Testament is that when a person says, uh, thus says the Lord, and he's, uh, he's given his prophecy, uh, if the prophecy doesn't come to be in the Old Testament, you are supposed to take a rock and stone him. Because he has taken up the Lord's name in vain. He's given authority to himself saying, I take on this authority as a prophet to say the Lord says this. And so in the Old Testament, you have this huge battle that is always going on where one set of prophets are saying this, another set of prophets are saying something else. And it's uh, duped out, it's battled out, and the only way that you know that that prophet is truly God's prophet is it ends up the way he has prophesied. And so in the Old Testament, uh, there was a more serious connotation that when you take up the name of the Lord, and you make a prophecy, it would happen exactly to the T. But what we find in the New Testament is that some prophecies are given. For example, Agabus uh, comes and makes a prophecy about uh, Paul, that he would be imprisoned, he'd be tied up, and he, he does basically a symbolic prophecy. He acts it out, ties him up, and says, this is how you will be taken away. But Paul, nonetheless, having heard this prophecy, and Agabus is admittedly a prophet, nonetheless, still goes and uh, does what he was told not to do. And what happens in the end is that the prophecy isn't fulfilled, at least not in the way that Agabus had acted it out. And so what we find in the New Testament is that these prophecies needed to be tested out and needed to be discerned amongst a group of people in order to determine, is this right? 
But prophecy is also a situation, as I said, it is not about uh, fortune-telling so that I can avoid these disasters. Prophecy in the New Testament is to say, God is going to do this, and you need to be prepared for it. And so when Jesus uh, tells Peter, prophetically, uh, you'll be taken to places you do not want to go, right? and, and, and these things are going to happen to you, uh, it's not telling Peter, I'm telling you this so that you can avoid it. It's just telling Peter, these are the issues that you will face. And so, in what Paul is teaching to the church at this point in time, that he values prophecy because prophecy speaks towards building up the church because he intends that the church would hear what God's saying to them. It would be based on scripture, it would be based on the life of Jesus, and it would be about how the church would be going through all these trials and tribulation. John, for example, when he writes the uh, apocalypse of Revelation, is giving prophecy in an apocalyptic form that talks about the present and the future. It's, so it's foretelling and foretelling prophecy. So what do we know about, uh, about these gifts, the spiritual gifts? One, Paul says, uh, follow the way of love. And therefore, before we talk about gifts, the true measure of a church and uh, its, its uh, spiritual nature is the dimension of love that we express. Okay? The true spirituality of a church is not how much tongues or prophecy or word of God or all these charismatic expressions that you have. The true, the true expression of the spirituality of a church is in the love that they show by how they follow God. That's the first one. But the second one is, Paul also says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Especially the gift of prophecy. Now, how does this affect us? Because I know in the history of the church, especially the Methodist church that I've been through, throughout the period of the 1980s, all the way even up into the recent 2010s, we have had churches that have broken up and fractured as a result of this charismatic movement, where many have said, you know, this is a work of the devil, uh, it's, it's uh, unholy, we want to have no part about this. They're having all these ecstasies, and it has become disorderly. Now, we need to temper that and understand what Paul is saying. He's not saying that tongues and uh, these spiritual giftings are wrong. In fact, he's saying, eagerly desire them. But you need to have follow the way of love. And the, way, the way of love is not your right. The way of love is consideration for others. Right? So eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. So I want to get it very clear across, especially to our Methodist church, uh, Trinity, that the use and the expression and the desire for the spiritual giftings is not wrong. I hope I get that across clearly because many people have asked me, Methodist Church, we can speak in tongues, man. <laughs> Are we allowed to? Is anyone able or given permission to raise their hand and say, I have a word, I have a word from the Lord and I want to speak prophetically now? Uh, now, there are several conditions in which it works. And so I'd like to tell you that the position scripturally, as well as amongst many of my Methodist uh, pastor friends, is that the use of these spiritual giftings is permissible desirable but the issue is 
when and how you use these gifts, which, what, which is what Paul will talk about. Uh, and then we have these two statements. The one who uh, speaks in tongues edifies himself. Uh, the one who prophesies edifies the church. Okay, the one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, have you ever seen anyone speak in tongue, which is then interpreted, and it is given as a prophecy? And one head nodding and a few others like, uh, we've become very... <laughs> one of the examples that I've been uh, given of... Uh, our situation where people spoke in pro this actually happened in uh, Orang Asal uh, Sarawak environment uh, as part of the SIB uh, group. Uh, what happened in the longhouse was they, they were quite charismatic in their expression, so they had moments where you were allowed to speak in tongues and worship God. And so as a congregation, they would be speaking in tongues and talking to the Lord. But someone then says a word of the Lord and started speaking in tongues. And what the elders then did was they gathered around and they said, these people who are elders in our church have the gift of interpretation. And so they gathered and they listened to this uh, lady who admittedly in the past had also given these prophecies before in tongues. Okay. And these elders gathered around, listened to her, and they started praying and it was only after a few hours that they came together and someone says, we believe that we have uh, an interpretation of what it is. And they shared this interpretation with the rest of the congregation and the rest of the congregation admitted, yes, this is true. Now, therefore, what this means is that in the issue of prophecy, in the exercise of this gifting, it requires group discernment. It is a group that discerns together with the gifting of the Holy Spirit that what this person is saying resonates with them, speaks God's truth, does not contradict Scripture, and is something which they will listen to and heed. Now, where this has been abused is you may have a, a pastor or an elder or someone rather spiritual in the church who speaks in a lot of tongues and suddenly will come out and say, Thus says the Lord, Here's a word from the God. Here's a word from God. And then place so much guilt and pressure on you that if you do not listen to them, then you are, it would seem as if you are contravening the word of God that has, God has used with them. And it's particularly dangerous when you have a pastor. So I'm, I'm giving you a caution. If I ever come to you and say, God has told me that you ought to marry this person. <laughs> It's quite right for you to come back and say, well, he may have said that to you, but I haven't heard anything. <laughs> and neither have all these other people. Okay, so group discernment, when it comes to what God has spoken to you, is quite important. In it. And, and Paul as much says so. He says it needs to be interpreted and people will listen and they need to interpret this. But this point, uh, speaking in tongues is a personal thing is intended to be a, a, something between uh, us and God. Is there a place for it in a congregation? And some would argue yes, some would argue no. Okay, and I think it's relatively neutral. But Paul has uh, specifically said, uh, when you speak in tongues, unless you have a person to interpret, you should remain quiet. 
Now, I think he means that in particular, when you are speaking in tongues to give a prophecy, but there is no one to interpret it, then you should be quiet. But the use of tongues as a form of prayer for your own personal edification is not wrong. So far, as long as it does not disrupt worship. As long as you do not have someone who is raising their voice and drowning everybody else and saying, look at me, look at me how spiritual I am in the tongues that I speak, that needs to be cautioned against. So what else can we say about this uh, good things? Verse 6, Now, Brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? So it is with you. Uh, it's jump six verses, right? Uh, you can read that in your own time. I'm just putting these two together. Since you're eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. So the purpose of these giftings has always been that you would build up the church. And since we are all bricks, the purpose of tongues is to edify us, to strengthen us, and it gives us the ability to speak in a way that expresses emotions, feelings, and thoughts which we can't find words for. So it builds up that brick. But the purpose of all these gifts in, 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 a, in a use together is to build up the entire church. Therefore, on that basis, he's going to say one is better than the other. Uh, he gives this example. Now, let me, let me read that, verse um, 7 onwards, I think. Verse 7, Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me, so it is with you. Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. So in all of these verses from verse 5 to 25, Paul is arguing for intelligibility, that people make sense, of what it is that you are doing. He's not saying that you outright shouldn't do it at all since at that moment you are not intelligible, but he says the predominance is that it should be intelligible. Now, it may be a situation that the church had entered into a point where many had come into uh, the ecstasies. Okay? And, and this is, in a way, uh, I, I share this information with you. It's a little bit of background, but I, I say take it with caution because it's not in the text. It is outside the text. Uh, one of the issues, as you, as you heard me mention in the last two weeks, is that there were many cults, there were many temples, and some of these temples were dedicated to uh, goddesses, where the priests were women, right, and where they were engaged as high priestess or chief priestess in these temples. And it's not uncommon, and they do have some historical record, that some of these people had converted. That from pagan religions, they were coming into the church and they wanted to be active in the church in the same way they had been active in the temple. And we have locally seen situations here where people sometimes go and you see them being overcome 
to the point that they are in a way possessed uh, or uh, they've raptured in such a way that they are unable to understand what is going on. And so if you've ever seen this before, I've noted it happening in some of our uh, temples, uh, both Hindu, Taoist and, um, and other shrines that you have to local deities where they are entering into a trance and a spirit or an entity takes them over. So one of the arguments that is coming out from commentators is that these things are possibly happening within the church and it is disrupting the church. Now this is one opinion and I'm cautioning you in the sense that this is possible but we don't really see this being said in the text. Okay, this is extra biblical outside the text. But there are some grounds to think that maybe. Again, Paul is arguing whilst these things may be good and these are instruments of praise and worship to God, they are between the person, tongues, to God as opposed to, to one another. And so he says, if I'm going to play a musical instrument, then obviously I would want you to understand what that note is rather than just have a lot of noise that comes through. That's the preponderance of what Paul is trying to get across. So how then do we uh, proceed from there? So what should we do? Paul says, okay, what should we do? Is it an either or, or can we do both? And he says, sing and pray with the Spirit and with understanding. What he means is both tongues and prophecy. Because to him, when you sing in the Spirit or you pray in the Spirit, that would be in tongues. Uh, but when you do this with understanding, it's not just with the Spirit, but also that you are engaged with this rationally as well. So he says, do both. So, brothers and sisters, Methodist Church, right? I feel as if I'm targeting us all the time. We tend to take extremes. In fact, some people used to say, uh, you know, the, the Methodist Church is only, does the Methodist Church believe in the Trinity at all? You know, because we used to have this running joke that the, the church believed in God the Father, uh, God the Son, and the Bible, the Word of God. Again, the Trinity is not that. The Trinity is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the works of the Holy Spirit sometimes expresses the giftings of the Holy Spirit in the charismatic gifts are an expression of these giftings but the true expression of the Holy Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And so these things, uh, do we allow it? Yes. Uh, do we allow it with certain cautions? Yes too. But above it all, it needs to be orderly and it needs to be understood about things. Paul, in particular in verse 18 and 19, makes this point. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Paul says this, I speak tongues more than all of you, but in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So he makes this distinction between public and private, and he says the use of tongues in private is more common Whereas in the public worship, he would rather speak in an intelligible word. Again, it's not to say not at all. Okay? So I want to caution if the church is saying, okay, therefore we shouldn't have people speaking in tongues at all. 
then I say that's taking the other extreme and it's not appropriate. You, you cannot reconcile that with, with Paul saying eagerly desire the gifts and use it as part of your worship as well. His point is, there is a priority. It should be more understood than it is mysterious. It should be more building up the church than just you having a personal conversation with God just throughout that whole time. You can do that as part of your private worship. And so, verses 5 to 25, if you go back and read about this, is this huge argument about intelligibility, that you are understood, that people understand, and is building up your knowledge. Again, you remember Paul is saying, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That happens both as a mystery, but also as a means of teaching and, and uh, uh, a renewing of how we look at things in the light of Christ Jesus. Then he comes to his other point about uh, good order in worship. And he gives this order uh, of tongues and prophecy. And I want to point out here, if we haven't yet guessed, prophecy has a higher priority uh, than tongues. So I sometimes, you know, someone used to ask me, you know, in some of our charismatic, charismatic churches, they do it less now, but some still do. Uh, just the other day, uh, Annette was joking with me and she was saying, yeah, I almost went into this church, but then this church said, uh, as part of the membership, you must be able to speak in tongues. And she had an argument with the, with the pastor and says, where in the Bible does it say that? That my membership in the church requires that I must speak in tongues. In fact, if you were to say it, then um, how do we define that? And how do we know? And so, uh, admittedly, some of my charismatic friends now say, no, no, we don't really do that now anymore, thankfully. Uh, so there's a, a, a better understanding of what it expresses. But the general desire in most of our charismatic churches is that you should ask. Okay? And you should not be like some of the churches that totally say that's an abomination and we shouldn't do it at all. It's being possessed. Uh, no. Uh, it is desirable, as Paul says, that you say you eagerly desire these gifts. And so he's saying, do ask. You should desire it. What else is he talking about in terms of good order in worship? Uh, and this is the part where you know, people get ready to start throwing stones at me or, or, or hitting me. Um, it's in a way talking about disorderly, uh, not even disorderly, but disgraceful women. And I want to point out here, there is a context to this. Now, I've put in some text there, uh, Corinthians 11 verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 5, verse 12, 11, and, and a few others. Now, why, why do we want to look at this? Do you recall that I say that Paul, when he writes a letter, whether it's to Romans or, or to Corinthian church or Ephesian church or Galatians, it is situational. He's addressing a particular situation and it's affecting that particular community. It doesn't always mean that it applies to everyone. But in 11 verse 5, let me just read what 11 verse 5 says. 11 verse 5 says, Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. And so how do you, in that sentence, before this, 
say that a woman can pray and prophesy, and then in verse for, uh, in chapter 14 say, no, women should not speak at all in a worship service. Uh, one is rather absolute and very general. Uh, the other one is already uh, giving another situation that seems to contradict it. So is he really saying this? Uh, let's look at 12.11 again. 12.11 says, All these are the work of one, the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Uh, now, if you go back a little bit there, when he opens in chapter 12, verse 1, now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagan, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Uh, therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord. So he's, in chapter 12, he's talking to both women and men. And he's saying to them that the Spirit distributes the gifts according to how the Spirit wants to give. And there is no distinction that these gifts are only for men and these gifts are only for women. Now, why is that an important thing to consider? Well, if you are given the gifting in order to preach and teach, uh, a gifting to speak in tongues and to prophesy, and then someone says, what the Spirit has given to you, I deny you. Any right to use this in the church, it would be rather contra. Victory. So how can Paul, again, in, in the space of uh, two chapters, three chapters, say things that seem to be in apparent contradiction to each other? So can they or can they not speak? In 14.31, again, he says there, for you can all... And again, he's addressing both the men and the women in that congregation. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. So commentators who have wrestled with this also have to wrestle not just with what Paul is saying, but with the length and breadth of the entire scriptures. Because if the Holy Spirit inspires this, would he be writing something that is inconsistent? So let me bring to you some thoughts. Here's what a, what a commentator wrote. How can women like Eudoia and Syntyche, uh, you find them in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, uh, Prisca in Romans chapter 16, verse 3, and 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19. Mary in Romans chapter 16, verse 6. Junia in Romans chapter 16, verse 7. Tryphena, Tryphosa, Romans chapter 16, verse 12. Function as co-workers in the churches if they cannot speak in those churches. Now, I've just given you a list of reference. These are letters which Paul himself wrote. And in them, he is saying these women are co-workers and they are to be esteemed and respected. He continues, How can Phoebe fulfill her role of a deacon in Romans chapter 16, verse 1 to 2 if she cannot speak out in the assembly? How can a woman like Nympha 
who is influential enough to host a house church in Colossians chapter 4, verse 15, have been required to remain silent in her own home. You can also look at uh, Prisca, the wife of Aquila, in chapter 16, verse 19 of Romans. That's just the New Testament. When we look at the Old Testament, we say, what about the Old Testament witness of Miriam, who is called a prophetess, okay? uh, who obviously speaks in the assembly in front of all the people in, in Moses' time? Uh, you find this in Exodus chapter 15, verse 20 uh, and 21, Deborah. Um, Deborah, another one who is a prophetess and also a judge, a leader. And at the time of, uh, of Deborah, a prophetess, wife of uh, Lapidoth, was judging Israel. Uh, she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel. So she was so influential that she had an own palm that was named after her. Sit under the palm of Deborah when the Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim and the Israelites came up to her for judgment. This is in Judges chapter 4, verse 4 to 5. There are other people that I mentioned. Uh, I'm just listing a few. Don't forget, there's also Ruth, there's Tamar, there's Esther, there's Abigail. All these women who have spoken in the assembly who are recognized either as leaders, judges, prophets, uh, prophetesses. So how does Paul say this, that he doesn't want women to speak because it's disorderly? So we need to use the whole breadth of Scripture in order to understand again, is Paul speaking to a particular context? So there are three common interpretations. One uh, is what they call this interpolation. Interpolation is where the people who read the original text say, in our original manuscripts, there are some manuscripts that put this verse in this place and put this verse or put the same verse in a different part in that same passage different sources. And one of the arguments, they say that this is not originally Paul's writing, that someone wrote it in the margins and another writer then came and inserted it into this in order to reconcile what Paul is saying elsewhere about women and their uh, hierarchy. Now, this is one argument. Right? I'm not saying that it's right. And in fact, most people say that's rather hard to accept. The second one is, is this a Corinthian quotation. Much in the same way that what we had earlier on where Paul says, you say this, but this is my response. That they are arguing that women should shut up and not say anything in the, in the, in the church at all. All commentators who look at the Greek say this is probably quite unlikely too. Because if it did, there, there would be signs to indicate that this is actually a quotation. But again, there are people who are divided in trying to argue about this. The third one uh, would seem to be most likely the one that closely matches what we think will likely be the context in which it's dealing with. Why? It is a concern for accord in husband and wife relationships. In particular, you note that this restriction is not for women to speak. The restriction is for wives and therefore, the situation that is likely being addressed here, that in the presence of a husband, possibly, who is giving a prophecy, the wife suddenly comes up in front of everybody because these are house churches, 
and the house church, the wife is also a significant person with this family, is going up and publicly questioning the husband. How can you say that? What do you mean about this? And is rebutting or reputing this. Because as you recall, when a person speaks in tongues, someone has to interpret and there's a discernment process that needs to happen. And so this third area where people say this is a possibility is that in the situations where you would bring about a public dispute between a husband and a wife, the wife is told, go and ask your husband in the privacy of the home. Don't do this in public because it is not, dis not necessarily disorderly. It disrupts the order of service because it makes it really awkward. So can you imagine a situation that I'm preaching out here and my wife decides to come and object and say, i got a question about you about that. And everyone's going to draw a deep breath. But in the culture of the people at that time, that would be disgraceful. That would be totally uh, abhorrent and it would horrify people. How can these Christians be like this? And Paul wanted them to avoid such situations. And so instead of looking at the specific or what's being said here, he's talking about this from a point of, in your, in your worship, let your worship be orderly and do not bring disgrace to the relationships that you have with each other. Now, you can still take any one of those three explanations. I'm leaning more towards the third because when you allow for the third, it then means that women can still speak as it has in the Old Testament and the New, but in a situation where there is a potential conflict between a husband and a wife publicly as part of the worship, that would be seen as disorderly. So rather than have that public spat, they ought to keep it aside. Now one might rightly ask, why is it only one way? So if the husband says something, the wife cannot rebut. But if the wife says something and prophesies, does that mean that the husband can do that? Well, if you wanted to be very literal, that might be the case. But I would put across to you what Paul says elsewhere, submit to one another. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, obey your husbands. So an act of love would be not for a husband to humiliate the wife in front of everyone by questioning what she says. Go take it home. Talk about it at home. I leave it with you to chew this and I've tried to be as fair as possible to give you different interpretations. <laughs> Hopefully not to confuse you. But I'd like to put it across to you that this is possibly the context that he's dealing with. And that in the weight of all the other scriptures in Romans and other parts where he acknowledges that these are co-workers and these people like Junior, Prisca are great amongst the apostles, they would argue that some of them, like Junior, may also possibly be seen as apostles themselves. Okay. So there's this huge debate going on right now in the rest of this world uh, that tends to think themselves very smart and bright about the role of women. Uh, equality or egalitarian versus complementarian. Uh, I try not to fall into either side and just allow the text to speak for itself. And so I present to you that tension. Women have been prophetesses, women have been leaders, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. They are esteemed and they are leaders, they are deacons. 
they do make certain decisions, but in the case of a conflict that is a part of the public worship, Paul's admonition is we should all be quiet. And specifically, he aims it at the women. He says, do not do this, which would be rather disgraceful to speak against your husband in a public setting about interpretation of prophecy or the use of the spiritual gifts. How does Paul end? Verse 26 to 40, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Now, one of the difficulties in the Greek text is there are no punctuation marks like uh, commas, apostrophes, and so forth. Uh, so the question is, as this part of this God of disorder of peace, or as some people have said, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people, women should not speak. That's how some people have interpreted in order to, for them to defend, oh, women should be quiet in all the churches around the world. Uh, many of the interpretations, particularly the NIV, the newer versions, actually put this together. God is not a God of disorder of peace, and that it applies for all churches. It is not specifically related to that women in the worship service. Going forward, uh, if you were to ask me, what do I really take away from this? Uh, look at the last verse. The one that says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, it says it to both, be eager to prophesy, do not forbid speaking in tongues. So church, if you do see someone speaking in tongues, uh, please refrain from telling them to get out of the church. It has happened before. You might, you might you know, snicker and laugh about this, but in some churches, they've seen it and they've been very spooked out by it because they relate this to what has happened in temples and other places. Uh, no, there is a place for the right use of tongues. Okay. But at the same time, uh, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. And if you recall, in the past two weeks, if by the use of my freedom, I'm causing you to stumble, it is better for me to not do it out of love, right? And so above and overarching of all these things is the exercise of love that restrains our freedom that it would build up others. I think I've survived this because I haven't had any eggs or tomatoes flying at me. But if you'd like to talk to me about this and uh, have a further discussion, do drop me a note or catch me at some point in the office. I'd love to have a conversation with you about this. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, you've always reminded us that the way of love is the way the most excellent way, Lord, and that in our pursuit of these giftings, we end up sometimes trying to surpass each other and believe that we are more spiritual than others. Help us, Lord, uh, learn how to be eagerly desiring love above all things and the use of these giftings in order to edify not just ourselves, but also to build up the church. Lord, may your word go forth. May it not return empty, Lord. And if I have caused any confusion or error, Lord, forgive me. And would, your, would you use your spirit, Lord, to bind up the words for your good and your glory. We ask this and commit all this to you, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.